I'm Kim Raycon, Marketing Associate for Harper Academic, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Harper Academic's podcast, Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators and students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Wiley Cash. Twelve times a week, 28-year-old Ella Mae Wiggins makes the two-mile trek to and from her job on the night shift at American Mill No. 2 in Bessemer City, North Carolina. While the dirty, hazardous job at the mill earns Ella Mae a paltry $9 for 72 hours of work each week, it's the only opportunity she has. Her no-good husband, John, has run off again, and she must keep her four young children alive with whatever work she can find. When the union leaflets begin circulating, Ella Mae has a taste of hope, a yearning for the better life the organizers promise. To maintain their control, the owners will use every means in their power, including bloodshed, to prevent workers from banding together. On the night of the county's biggest rally, Ella Mae, weighing the costs of her choice, makes up her mind to join the movement, a decision that will have lasting consequences for her children, her friends, her town, and all that she loves. In the last ballad, Wiley Cash brings to life the heartbreak and bravery of the now-forgotten struggle of the labor movement in early 20th century America, and pays tribute to the thousands of heroic women and men who risked their lives to win basic rights for all workers. The last ballad is on sale in hardcover October 3rd from William Morrow. Today on the phone with us we have Wiley Cash, whose book The Last Ballad is going to be out October 3rd. Wiley, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thank you for thank you for having me. You're very welcome. One of the things that I think is important to mention about The Last Ballad is that it's the telling of an actual historical event. And one of the things that I'd like to start off first with is what that writing experience was like for you. Why choose the particular event surrounding the Luray Mill in North Carolina and the labor movement? Well, I grew up in Gastonia, North Carolina, where the novel's set, and um, I never heard about Ella Mae Wiggins, the novel's heroine, the, the, uh, the, the woman that, that's real. Um, I never heard about LMA, I never heard about the Lori Mill strike until I left Gastonia, left North Carolina altogether and went to graduate school in Louisiana. And it was there that a professor said, hey, I heard you're from Gastonia, home of the Lori Mill strike. And I, I asked myself, what's the Lori Mill strike? And when I looked into it, I was shocked that I had never heard about what at that time was the seminal moment, and maybe is still the seminal moment of, in labor history in the American South. Um, and so I, I, I started studying it, and I threw myself into the, the struggle of LMA and the tragedy of LMA's life and the bravery of LMA and, and this really combustible moment in the summer of 1929 when race and class and politics converged in this tragic storm. And I wanted to write about it, but I wasn't quite ready to tackle something like that. I was in graduate school, and I was finishing a Ph.D. in American Lit., and I needed to sharpen my skills as both a writer and a researcher to take on a, a story like this. But, but once I did, it was just incredible. Um, the story behind this novel that I had never learned about just you know, it blew my mind. Right. So what, what, what would you say the role of history is in, in this particular fiction? The role of history in, in this novel, at least for me, was to 
Lori Milstruck has been left out. It was a moment when the poor stood up to the rich and demanded a fair wage and safe working conditions and a sensible work week, and they were they were physically and violently put down. And I wanted to go back and recast this history from the side of the losers, in effect, and say, you know, this was the struggle, and this is the way that people's lives were altered and affected and, and ruined and destroyed. And I wanted to tell that story instead of the story that my hometown always tells and the state of North Carolina always tells, which is mm-hmm. Gaston County was the calm yarn capital of the South, and it was the city of spindles, and we were so proud of our mills. And But there's a lot of blood behind those mills and a lot of murder behind those mills. And that's the story I wanted to tell in this book. And so the story is the story. The story that's set in 1929 is told primarily through the figure of Ella May Wiggins, as you said. The historical Ella May was dubbed by Woody Guthrie as the pioneer of the protest ballad. So she was a real person who had a real history. What were the challenges for you in fictionalizing this historical person? The greatest challenge was the great freedom I had, because while we know the really salient facts of Ella May's life. For example, she was born in 1900 in the mountains of East Tennessee. Um, she left the mountains uh, for the cotton mills in the South Carolina upstate and the Piedmont of North Carolina in the 1910s. She married you know, a no good man, just as he's presented in the novel mm-hmm. named John Wiggins. Um, by the time her life was taken in 1929, she was 28 years old. She'd given birth to nine children and four of them had died from whooping, whooping cough and pellagra. She lived in a predominantly African-American community. She worked for $9 for a 72-hour work week in an integrated textile mill. She went on to write protest ballads, as you mentioned, that Woody Guthrie performed, Pete Seeger recorded. She single-handedly integrated the labor union against the will of local officials, and she traveled to Washington, D.C. and confronted North Carolina senators about the plight of working mothers in, in the southern mills. And then when she was murdered by people hired by the mill, she was literally disappeared from history. And so those are the things that are known about her life, but that's really it. There's no, there are no journals. There are very few eyewitness accounts of her. None of her music was ever recorded. The lyrics were recorded and performed, but none of her music was recorded. Uh, to my knowledge, there are only two or three pictures existing of her. And so, you know, I had the big moments in LMA's life, but life is not constructed of big, huge moments. Life is not constructed of our best days and our worst days. Life is constructed of the day-to-day plodding ahead and getting through life, especially when you're as poor as LMA is. And so the challenges were to take a woman about whom I only knew her momentous moments, Mm -hmm. both the highs and the lows, and make her human. You know, show her in domestic situations with her family. Show her in labor situations inside the cotton mill. Show her becoming a leader, not just her being a leader. So those were the real challenges of presenting her character. So what was your research process like? Since there, since there was a sort of scarcity of primary documents, if you will, what, what was that research process like? The research process was, was enjoyable, and, you know, my background is in academic research, um, and so I really enjoyed doing, you know, combing library shelves and combing the databases, and I've always been really fortunate to be tied to a university one way or another, and so for much of the time I was writing this book, I was teaching at UNC Chapel Hill, and they have an expansive North Carolina Studies collection and an expansive Southern Studies collection, so I had a lot of access to literature written about the strike. Uh, in 1929. 
And so I was able to delve into those um, historical and you know critical responses uh, to the event. What I was also able to do was to go to the site of the strike itself. You know, the Lorry Mill is still there. It's recently been converted into high-end luxury apartments for the Nouveau Riche in Charlotte. As most, as most historical things have been, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, but they do have a nice museum inside the mill that speaks to LMA's struggle. They have a historical marker out on the main road leading into the mill. Um, ironically, the city was in possession of that historical marker for about a decade before everyone could agree to put it up. That's how dangerous the history of the mill strike has been. But I was able to go to Bessemer City and find where LMA had lived in, a, in, a, in an area called Stumptown. Mm-hmm. I was able to go inside this dilapidated mill where she worked in 1929, American Mill Number no. 2, and walk the same steps and look at the same beams and go to the place where she would have worked as a spinner. And I was able to go walk the ground where the strikers' tent colony sat and where the strikers' headquarters was raided by police in June, which was the most violent event of the strike. And so I was able to do the academic research, but I was also able to do the physical research of going to these places. And then perhaps most importantly, I was able to immerse myself culturally in the historical moment of 1929, and much of that was done through music. Um, so much of the music, uh, of hillbilly music and mountain music from the Depression, the early years of the Depression, came out of mill communities like Gaston County. Mm-hmm. And some of the best-known singers and performers came from Gaston County, like the contemporary band Carolina Chocolate Drops or the contemporary band Okra Medicine Show, the lead singer of whom is a friend of mine. You know, they're singing music written about mills in Gaston County. And to be able to go back and find this original music and hear the pain in these voices and the irony of these tales of being promised great riches if you just leave the mountains and come down to Gastonia and get a job in the mill, your life will be made. And those songs go on to say things like, well, now I can't make enough money to move away. I'm stuck here. I'm enslaved by this mill. I'm I'm too poor to leave. That sounds like it can be the plot of another, a second book. <laughs> of, sure. Yeah. About, about, the 19, about the late 1920s in Gastonia County. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, was, it was an incredible place, and it still has an edge to it. You know, people from North Carolina, when I say I'm from Gastonia, they, they have the bless your heart look on their face. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, it's, you know, it's a great place. It was a great place to grow up. I had woods and, and uh, interesting places to play and um, great schools and a lot of good friends there, but it definitely has a, a shadowy, violent history driven by, you know, divisions and race and class. So there's two narratives at work in The Last Ballad. Uh, one is Ella's, and it's contemporaneous to, the, to 1929, uh, and the other is Lily's, which is epistolary in nature, and that is set forward in historical time in 2005. Why were those two layers and structures um, important for you as a framing device for this novel? Um, That's a good question. You know, the original setup of the novel was the story of Ella Mae leaving the mountains in the 19-teens and ending up in Gastonia. And that that narrative was going to be intercut with the narrative of Lily after the tragedy that befalls her mother, Mm -hmm. leaving the orphanage and trying to get back to the mountains to find her mother's people. But that didn't really quite work. It wasn't very balanced. But I was still really stuck on Lily's voice and the idea of Lily looking back on the life of her mother and not quite understanding all of the sacrifices her mother went through to keep her alive. But now in her old age, 
looking back and writing a letter to her nephew who, who doesn't know much about his family. And she tells him, she says, you know, it was a shameful thing to be LMA's daughter when I went to the orphanage. People, people talked about us. You know, they knew she, we, that we lived among African Americans. And in 1929, that you were shamed for that. They knew that she, that she was a single mother because our dad ran off, and she was shamed for that. And I'm just now ready, as an old woman, to look back on my life and tell you about who your grandmother was, because nobody's done it. Because there's been a, there's been a shame attached to being LMA's daughter, and so I wanted to balance that narrative of looking back with new eyes, with the narrative of the of the contemporary moment in Ella's life of her coming into her own and battling with with determination and pride and certainty and conviction to show the way that history is not a fixed thing. The readers reading about LMA and thinking, oh my gosh, this is the most powerful, you know, magnetic, independent, tough-minded woman I've ever read about. But her daughter is looking back and saying, no, it was, I wasn't proud to be her daughter because people told me I shouldn't be. And I wanted that push and pull and the reading of history to show, you know, students or readers that History is not fixed. History is not a thing we look at and we say, that's the story. The single narrative is the story. There are a lot of narratives because there are a lot of different perspectives. I'm not saying there are different facts. There are no alternative facts to history. (laughs) Uh, But there are certainly alternative experiences to history. And that's what I wanted to show in the novel. Right, and and some of the some of the key themes that come out of, I think, sort of the, the dual framework that you have are the idea of writing, sort of the ideas of writing in existence and, and the ideas of, of writing as a way of dealing with history or, or legacy. And at one point in Lily's letter, she says, in short, I was ashamed not of who my mother was, but of how much stronger she was than the woman that I had become. So it sort of expresses her, her disappointment. What would you say to, to readers who become interested in these, these themes of writing and existence and, and dealing with legacy, whether it be sort of a, a personal familial legacy or sort of the larger legacy, if you think of, of LMA and, and the labor movement? You know, I think that, you know, in writing, especially writing like a nonfiction piece or a memoir or, you know, a freshman composition essay, it's always really interesting to tell students when they're in the classroom, you can say, you know, you're in college now. Yeah. You no longer have to be the person you've always thought you were supposed to be. Who writes five paragraph essays, yeah. Who writes five paragraph <laughs> essays about how much you love your grandmother, right? Yeah, yeah. We're not gonna do that anymore. You need to write about things that matter to you. And you need to write about and examine the person you want to be and the person, um, you you feel like you're you're growing into not the person people always told you you were supposed to be um and so i think that that memoir and legacy and writing i think of it as an act of as we're putting words on the page what we really do is mining information from our minds and our heart and we're excavating those things and the refuse of that of that excavation ends up on the page that's 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 the stuff that we're pulling out of the whole of our of our existence, of our, or our own legacies, and we're putting it on the page as a testament to, this is what I dug up. This is when I when I when I looked at the at the yard of my life and I started digging into the dirt. This is the dirt. Let's sift through these words and see what the value is, and see what the story is, and see what the narrative is of my life, or the narrative is of the things that matter to me. 
And I think that college and I think the classroom, especially the creative writing classroom and the composition classroom, is the place where you give students the freedom to do that. One of the things that the novel plays with across both of the narratives um, between Lily's a bit more so, I guess, um, in, in the varieties of ways in which characters and people come into LMA's life is this question of defining what it means to be American. In some ways, if you think about the strikers, they have a particular way of, of seeing how to be American. Uh, Violet and the African-American community in Stumptown certainly have an alternate experience of, of what that means. So too did the Goldberg brothers, because you say in, in the very beginning of the novel that according to the community that they would be considered white, they, the Goldberg brothers, would be considered white but not American. And because they were white but not American, the town had a different set of expectations for the brothers and the way they would run their mills. And that was after um, their first night uh, in, their new, in their new hometown uh, when they had a, a cross burned into their yard. What do you think the novel does with this idea of being American? And why do you think that's so important in today's current climate? Well, I think we have the great myth and I don't say myth in terms of, you know, how we mostly talk about myths as being negative constructions to perpetuate some kind of falsity about, you know, the ideology of America. But we do have the great myth of the melting pot. Mm-hmm. that We all just drop in this stew and we just all get together and the carrots and the potatoes and the onions are just like, oh, we all taste so good in this stew. But it's not necessarily that way. Some people get dropped in the pot and get punched in the face. And yeah. Some people get dropped in the pot and they work for free. And some people get dropped in the pot and they're, they're, they're exterminated. And so the melting pot is not this, this smooth integration of cultures and ideologies and religious beliefs and cultural and ethnic and backgrounds and socioeconomic classes. It's a fitful, frightful, intensely caustic confrontational place. That's Gastonian, the summer of 1929. So LMA is white. She's from the mountains of eastern Tennessee and western North Carolina a fiercely independent Appalachian spirit. And then she comes down and she marries this man from um, that area and they come down to the, to the mill villages, which are very communal. Mm-hmm. And so it's a hard thing for somebody who's fiercely independent, who grew up on a farm, to come down and be communal in a mill village. And then later in her life, she finds herself living in a, almost, almost in a wholly African-American community. And so she insinuates herself into this community and begins to depend, depend on her neighbors to watch her children, to oftentimes feed her, although she was too proud to accept charity, sometimes she had to. Mm-hmm. And she cared for people's kids, and they cared for her kids. And so she finds herself integrated into a, a community of people who do not look like her. Then the Goldberg brothers are based on real um, men who came and started these textile mills in, in Gaston County. They were from Latvia. They were Jews from Latvia. They, they were expelled from Latvia. And they came, and they were not treated as wholly American. I mean, sure, you're white, but you're not from America. And you're also Jewish in the land of white, Christian, Southern Baptists, and Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. And so you can own a mill, but you'd better set your cotton prices lower than we're setting ours. You can own a mill, and you can run a mill, but you better pay your people less than what we're paying ours, which means you're going to get the worst cotton. You're going to get the leftover cotton. And you're going to hire all the poorest, most unskilled workers. And so the Goldbergs ran a mill that was integrated. It was one of the only mills that was integrated in the county. 
it wasn't because they were socially progressive. It was because they needed workers, and these were the only workers they could find. And so Ella May lived in an African-American community, and she worked in an integrated mill. And so Ella understood something very quickly about America. We're not divided along lines of race. We're divided along lines of class, mm-hmm. at least in her situation. Right. And so when she joined the union, she found that the union was all white. And it was led by these quote-unquote progressive communists from New York City. And she went to them and she said, look, I've got a ton of African-American friends, a ton of black friends back in Stumptown that will walk off their jobs. We can shut down a couple of mills in Bessemer City if the union supports them the way you're supporting these white workers. And the union told her, no, these, these mountaineers, these, these, these folks from Appalachia in the upstate of South Carolina, they're not going to want to pick it beside blacks. And she said, it's not race that divides us. It's poverty that unites us, and we're all poor, and that needs to bring us together. And they fought it, but she eventually agitated enough that she was able to integrate the union. And she became the, the, the leader and the de facto face of that integrated union. And so the pieces in the novel that are these newspaper reprintings, mm-hmm. those, were, those were taken out of the real newspaper in Gastonia. The Gaston Gazette actually printed those editorials that said, Americans, now is the time to stand up and do your duty. In other words, do violence to these strikers. Mm-hmm. Do violence to these people who want to integrate. Do violence to these people from New York City. Do violence, because much of this, many of the strike leaders were Jewish. Do violence to these Jews who are coming into Gaston County. Do violence to them. Stand up and be Americans. And do what you're called on to do to defend our country and our constitution. It was really, really heightened political rhetoric. Well. If you watch TV <laughs> yeah. back in May in Charlottesville, you yeah. have a bunch of white guys marching with torches in their hands saying, you will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. It's the same thing that was happening in 1929. And when I was working on this novel, I'm, I'm, I'm coming up, we're coming up on the, on the election season last year in 2016, and I'm writing a novel about a strong, independent, tough-minded woman who was standing up to people who represented the forces of greed and capitalism. And the election was about a strong, tough-minded, independent woman who was standing up to a man who represented the faces of greed and capitalism. And the day after the election, I thought, oh, you know, America's very clearly telling me they don't want to read a novel like the one I've written. But the day after, the day after the election, and every day since, I feel like America's telling me, yes, we very much do want to read a novel about a strong, independent woman standing up to the forces of greed and capitalism. And so I thought I was writing a novel about 1929, but it turns out I was writing a novel about 2017. Yeah, yeah, quite, quite timely. So we just have one more question for you, and it's a question that we ask all of our podcast guests. Since our podcast is geared primarily to teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? I, I'm fortunate. I had, I had a slew of teachers that have meant a lot to me. Um, but I'll talk about... Uh, only 10 of them. <laughs> um, I, had, I had a teacher in ninth grade named Carol Lowry who um, taught English and really went out of her way to accommodate a fitful, um, angsty youth who thought Jim Morrison was the greatest American poet of all time. And she really went out of her way to, to work with me and find an outlet for some of the creative angst I had. Um, and then my senior year in high school, I had a teacher named Cynthia Furr, who let uh, 
friends, uh, me and some friends create, you know, alternative assignments. Uh, so for example, we had to write a big paper on, on the Iliad and we went to her and we said, you know, we've been talking about this and could we make a full length movie of the Iliad instead, instead of a paper? And she got the okay of the rest of the class and, and me and two, along with two of my friends made like a satirical, I guess it was like an hour version of the Iliad, but it hit on all of the major scenes and all of the major plot points and all of the themes. But when I, when I went to read the Iliad in college, I, I had it memorized because I'd performed it. You know, I knew everything about, in, in a way that writing a paper never would have quite done for me. And she just gave me incredible freedom uh, in writing and in creative writing. And then I had a professor in college named David Hopes, who um, still teaches at University of North Carolina Asheville, who just really um, catered to my desire to be a writer, but how to be a serious writer. And then in graduate school, I studied under um, the American author Ernest Gaines, who is still affecting me to this day. And then my mentor in my um, academic studies is a guy named Reggie Scott Young, who uh, has just been everything to my academic and writing career. That's really great. Well, Wiley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.